Hello and welcome to another Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood, where clinicians ask questions of their clinical practice, go out and search for evidence-based answers, appraise that information that comes back, and then summarise it all in a nice, neat way of putting it actually into practice. As I'm sure you'll be aware, we also have a little thing about critical appraisal or or the practice of medicine or the understanding of statistics that we roll in to those clinical questions as well. They arrive on a monthly basis, so feel free to undertake one yourself. Why not email your suggestions or engage in a Twitter chat? Just to make sure that it's something that we think is a reasonable question to do. Now, this time we have two questions One from a group of doctors working in Kenya, Pakistan and Leeds in the UK. Marie Lester, Wairimu Kiman and Peter Cartilage come together to ask a question about the use of plastic bags for the delivery of term neonates in low and middle income settings. It's known that hypothermia is associated with poor outcomes in neonates, and so they asked the question that in a low-income setting, would it be reasonable to get term babies popped inside plastic bags to keep them nice and warm before you got them out of the delivery area and in with their mummies? They went ahead and searched Cochrane and PubMed and went through the reference list of the articles they found. They found 223 articles of which there were five that seemed relevant and three well-sized randomised controlled trials. These included 271 infants in one trial, 141 in another and 84 in the third. Now, these two trials of term babies. There's a whole bunch of other trials of preterm neonates being born and wrapped up in plastic bags, but they're not really relevant to this question, as it might be quite different if you're a preterm neonate with a skin being different and all that, as to whether you're a, a fully cooked baby. In addition to those three randomised controlled trials, they also found an observational study looking at 500 neonates. Now, the trials were all slightly different, looking at different ways of using plastic bags, either drying the infants before or not drying them before, some comparing against kangaroo care, some comparing against radiant heaters, and there's a degree of complexity about trying to put them all together. We spoke on a previous podcast about the difficulty about having an intervention against standard care, when standard care isn't standardised across the whole trials. So a narrative synthesis, looking at this data and trying to pull it together and understand it, is the best that we can accomplish. One of the trials, the largest one, with 271 infants in it, did show a reduction in the number of babies who were hypothermic. The relative risk was about 0.8. And the other trials came in with similar answers, with reduced risk of hypothermia if the term neonate was placed in a plastic bag. The authors undertake a thorough commentary on the trials involved and also in the practical application of this in a low and middle income country setting. The trials were done in hospitals with skilled maternity care and yet that isn't the setting for most births. How much can we take this and use it outside of hospitals in the countries um, to which it applies? And that uncertainty remains. What the authors conclude in their clinical bottom lines is that placing term infants in plastic bags for an hour or so at birth does reduce hypothermia, but there's inadequate information 
on subsequent really serious problems like do they get admitted to intensive care units do they actually have a lower rate of hypoglycemia is there a reduction in respiratory distress and there's no great information on how to implement this in practice so a good idea one that could be put into practice if you have the kit but also raises lots of questions about how it might be taken forwards to put on more generally to apply to a wider setting than just within the hospital now the second question comes from Australia and that's Joseph Ozarski and Nigel Curtis from Melbourne. What they're asking is a completely different question. Their clinical scenario is of someone attending with their child who has been injured by a fine hypodermic needle that was discarded in a playground. The mum's understandably very panicked by this and is asking about the risk of HIV infection from the needle. What this team did was take that scenario and then go on to look about what is the risk of catching a bloodborne virus from a community acquired needle stick injury. They note in their introduction that most of the guidance that relates to needle stick injuries comes from information that's drawn from healthcare associated needle sticks and that these are quite different in that they're often got a larger inoculum of blood the blood will be fresh it won't have time to dry out or be heated by the environment and you often know the status of the person whose blood was on the needle that the injury was then led on to the Melbourne team undertook an extensive systematic search of the literature looking at Medline Cochrane Library and even Embase and went through over 1,000 publications to come down of 17 decent studies of interest. 16 of these provided sufficient information to really understand what was going on and that was often with the help of authors adding extra information. In addition to those studies they also found four isolated papers that had cases of bloodborne virus transmission within them. All in all, these papers added up to over 1,500 cases of a community-acquired needle stick injury. And in and amongst that, around 200 of those received HIV prophylaxis as post-exposure prophylaxis. And many more of them received Hep B prophylaxis. Of those 1,500 or so cases, only one, that's right, only one person was known to develop a bloodborne virus infection and this was the carer of somebody that had a chronic hep B infection and got a needle stick from that person and had not then followed up with post-exposure immunoglobulin and vaccination. There were no other cases of bloodborne virus transmission. Of the case reports, the four papers that reported those, there were five cases of bloodborne virus transmission. Now in each of these, the possibility of a viral infection by some alternative route of transmission was not ruled out. Their clinical bottom lines are really very simple and straightforward. They report they did not find any convincing evidence of blood-borne virus transmission to a child from an incidental community-acquired needle stick injury, and that it appears to be a very distinct entity than needle stick injury from healthcare settings. 
However, they do advise that the highest risk of transmission is likely to be for Hep B, and so that anyone that was exposed and hadn't been vaccinated did receive post-exposure prophylaxis with the Hep B vaccine plus or minus the immunoglobulin. It's a really interesting topic when you've got an extremely low risk of something, but a really huge anxiety about it. What's the right thing to do? Looking at the evidence and exploring that with parents in that situation might well be a better approach than just making a broad decision that states this is what we do in this situation. What these topics have done this month is take really objective measures as being important, like if the child is really cold or if someone develops a blood-drawn virus. But sometimes it's not like that. And it can be that the outcomes that we look at are all subjective. So does subjective equal meaningless? That's deliberately provocative. But And it's clearly not right because how I experience, say, pain uh, is meaningful to me. And my assessments of my own pain are likely to be reproducible. So if you hit me with that tendon hammer quite hard and ask me if it hurt and then you do it again, then I will tell you the same answer twice. And and they're also subjective but discriminatory. That is, it will be different if you ask me what pain I'm in after you've hit me with a tendon hammer or if you've given me, say, a nice bun with a cup of tea and and let me sit down and watch the telly for a while. Now, they also have face validity. If there was an independent observer watching you beat me with a tendon hammer and watching you give me a cup of tea and a bun, well, they probably now, with the duty of candour, have to stop you doing that to me and report you to the GMC. But, but apart from that, they will see and believe that my reports of pain are different. But some things really should be questioned more than, if you feel it, it must be true. If you accept a positivist view of reality, that is, that there is an external reality uh, and you can understand that, Uh, And I think that the questions you need to ask are, are these reports truthful and are these reports important? It may be that society does not instinctively make the subjective outcome as important as the objective one. It may be that we weight the ejection fraction from a cardiologist higher than the distance that a child or adult is about to walk. And it might be that a subjective outcome is erroneously reported, but an objective outcome might also be reported erroneously as well. I think sometimes what we do is mistake the argument of subjectivity for surrogacy. For example, it may be disputed that satisfaction with training is important. It's passing the exams that counts. In that case, I don't think the argument is that satisfaction is a subjective thing and that's why it's unimportant. It's that what's actually meaningful is the exam score. And that if all you're doing is measuring satisfaction, then you're sort of either assuming that there is a link between happy students and passing exams, or 
that you're measuring the wrong thing. Which lets me move on to my final topic, and that is there's something else that you might think of objectively, and that's the length of hospital stay. I believe this is a hugely subjective outcome. After all, how is it decided that somebody stays in hospital for that long? What are the factors that play into that? What what decisions are made about when the ward round eventually hits, or when the registrar gets to return, or when someone can come pick them up in the car? There are, according to health economists and others, only two objective things in life. Death and taxes. So, until next month, I'd like to leave you thinking of clinical questions to submit them to us, and by all means, feedback whatever you like about Archimedes, about podcasts, or about the rest of the journal. And I look forward to speaking to you next month. <laughs>